Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com. And joining me today, he is the man who played Mike Krakauer in the 1993 film The Pickle, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. Uh, Paul Mazursky directed that. And I didn't know when I went into audition that Paul was wearing a ponytail, a little ponytail in the back. Uh, it just looked like he was a very handsome guy with his hair pulled back. And he, he said, you know, how do you see your character? I said, well, I see my character as kind of a straight-laced guy, not one of these kind of <laughs> jerks <laughs> that's like a middle-aged man who wears a ponytail. Wow, I had that's no a, idea. Oh, man. What a really nice way to endear yourself to your future employer. It was so difficult to uh, take the feet out of my mouth. But I do remember on that set that I brought my youngest son, Robert, uh, to the set, and he got to ride on the camera, and the cinematographer was showing him how to operate the machine. It's wonderful to have kids on the set. Sounds like a blast, Tobo. Sounds like a blast. Well, uh, Stephen, it's been quite a while since we've recorded the last episode of The Tobolowski Files. A lot of life changes have occurred for me personally. I am now broadcasting live from Seattle today. Uh, I actually have uprooted my entire existence from Boston and moved to Seattle. And so that's where I'm coming to you right now. And uh, it's been kind of interesting because on the one hand, I've been nostalgic and homesick and kind of missing my home of Boston but also kind of looking forward to the future and, uh, and the uncertainty that it holds. Yeah, I, I always feel, David, you know, why waste a lot of energy worrying about the uncertainty of the future when you can use all that energy worrying about the uncertainty of the present? Sounds like a good use of energy, the most efficient use of energy. Tomo. The most efficient. You know, it all reminds, you know, I was feeling a little nostalgic myself. I remember this joke from my childhood, I can share with you. And, and I warn you up front, it is not funny. But I remember it because it turned out to be so true. So here it goes. A Jewish Orthodox congregation has moved into a beautiful new synagogue. And there's an opening ceremony where the Torahs are carried around the sanctuary and put into the ark. And the place is packed with all the congregants and members of the press to commemorate the event. The elders file into the sanctuary in procession, holding the Torahs. They start their march around the room, and as they pass one part of the auditorium, each one stops, ducks down, steps forward, stands up again, and then continues marching. One of the members of the press notices this odd behavior and asks a congregant what this ritual means. And the congregant whispers back and says, it means nothing. That's where the water pipe stuck out of the wall at the old place. That's it. That's the joke. But it makes several points. The first is that we are creatures of habit, no matter how the habit started. It could have a constructive origin, like when my parents told me I had to do my homework before I could go out and play. Or it could be a habit for a reason that no longer exists. That was where the water pipe stuck out of the wall at the old place. There's another sneakier meaning to the joke. Moving forward inevitably involves looking back. It seems counterintuitive, but it's true. We tend to look for our future in the rearview mirror. 
In a conscious way, it makes sense. Whenever we're in a difficult situation, we try to recall what we've seen or experienced that's similar. For example, with child-rearing problems, I often think, what would mom or dad have done in this situation? And then I do the opposite. And that's no offense to mom and dad. No, they read the child-rearing books by Dr. Spock. But when any problems arose, they forgot the books and tended to look back in time for a solution, probably back to the era of the pilgrims. We were lucky they didn't sell pillory boxes at Sears. My father was strict. Fortunately, he usually remained supine in front of the television set, or what I call in the ready position, while mom did a lion's share of the parenting. I would break something, or Paul and I would be running wild through the house, or I would have done something to make my little sister Barbie cry, and mom would call out, What's going on? If the noise continued, mom would call out again, Don't make me come down there. And if there was more screaming, we would hear footsteps. Now, if we heard mom footsteps, we would continue punching one another. If we heard dad footsteps, we would run for cover. When the dad card was in play, we knew we were in trouble. Dad was not a negotiator. (laughs) No. I remember one evening, I was about 10, dad and I were in the den watching Lassie. Dad had wrestled the rocking chair away from the cat, so he was happy. The house was quiet. The program went to commercial. Dad rocked slowly looking out the patio window. And from out of nowhere, he murmured, Spare the rod and spoil the child. I went on red alert. I had no idea why Dad was musing on corporal punishment during Lassie. With my ten-year-old brain, I figured it had to be me or the cat, and the cat wasn't in the room anymore. In hindsight, my guess was at that moment, Dad wasn't in the den with me at all. He was distracted by something he saw in his rearview mirror, something from his own childhood. Dad was the one who had to spank us. He never used a rod or a belt. He was never abusive. He was just an ordinary parent from the 50s who looked at child-rearing techniques used by his parents back in the 1930s who were, in turn, channeling their pasts. It was like a time travel movie. Unfortunately, all of us ended up somewhere back in the 18th century, which is why my bottom hurt the rest of the day. A spanking could be instructive. I remember I was six years old and had committed some infraction that required dad intervention. He told me to go to his bedroom. I began crying. He sat on the bed and told me to lie across his lap. I cried louder. And then he had a momentary vision of Cotton Mather and said woefully, Stephen, I want you to know this hurts me more than it hurts you. I stopped crying. It was a teaching moment I will never forget. In that instant, I understood something vitally important. The world was crazy. Of course it was going to hurt me more than it was going to hurt him. That was a given. But Dad was operating on instructions he was getting from another time, another place. It's the very definition of psychosis, and probably writing for television. All of us occasionally act on orders we receive from the past. It takes us by surprise. We feel a sudden passion for something we can't quite see in the distance. It's a shape without substance. If we take the time to look closely, 
we discover we're not looking in front of us at all. Like anything we see in the rearview mirror, it comes with a standard warning. Objects may appear closer than they actually are. I returned from my audition in New York. I got the part in Mornings at Seven, a role in a Broadway play. I should have been overcome with joy. I wasn't. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. This is every actor's dream come true. And then I thought of an alternate theory. What if I was locked in the remnants of a dream from my distant past? A childhood dream is like a neutron star, invisible to the eye, but its gravity is inescapable. When I arrived at the house, Anne and I didn't celebrate, even though she felt we should. The reality of the situation was too overwhelming. I had six weeks to be with my family before I had to leave. I was going for an indeterminate amount of time to live in an unspecified two-bedroom apartment somewhere on New York's Upper West Side. I was going to perform in a revival of a beautiful but frequently seen play. They call plays like Mornings at Seven an old chestnut. And just like real chestnuts, people like the thought of them more than actually eating them. What could I do in these six weeks to make the dread of separation go away? Looking back to the past wasn't useful. Anne and I didn't have a very good track record of being apart. Now, we're not dependent people by nature, but we've not handled feeling disconnected well. It almost led to a divorce or two. Each time we reached the breaking point, we realized that our love for one another couldn't abide that solution. But this was a breaking point beyond any we had faced. This was Siberia. We strategized. Strategy is comforting. It's a way of deluding yourself that you're in control of your future. Anne pulled out a calendar and circled the dates when she could visit me for the first time. She planned what I would pack. I was leaving in February, so I would only take winter clothes. She would visit every month and swap out sweaters and scarves for Bermuda shorts and T-shirts. I felt better having a plan. Looking at the calendar with all those red circles on it gave me the same sense of relief you get when you go to the dermatologist and he tells you it's not poison oak, it's just hives. For the rest of the six weeks at home, there was plenty to do. Christmas and Hanukkah were just around the corner. Once again, to look forward, I look back to my past. Like my parents, even though I was Jewish, we decided to exchange presents on the 25th of December so the boys wouldn't feel so different from their friends. Unlike my parents, Santa Claus would not leave the presents under our dining room table. Anne was a combination Episcopal, Baptist, and some sort of self-created Wiccan, so we were going to have a tree, a huge, beautiful tree that she decorated with all of her favorite ornaments from her childhood. She strung the lights on the branches with the care of a NASA scientist right before a launch. Then she added white feathers. The feathers had an undesired effect on our cat, so they came down. Lace snowflakes replaced them. At dusk, Anne flipped the switch. The tree was beautiful to behold. Anne looked at her handiwork with pride and said, It's all about bringing the outdoors indoors. It was a romantic notion until I realized she spent the rest of the year with mops and brooms trying to do the opposite. I decided that unlike my parents, we were also going to celebrate Hanukkah. 
big time. Anne made latkes. We had a menorah for each boy. We would light the candles and give them gifts every night. We played dreidel, the spinning top gambling game. It may have been spiritually confusing for everyone, but at least some of the last memories the boys would have of me before I left home would be fun ones. Most mornings, I continue to walk around the neighborhood working on the play in my head. Julie Haggerty had been cast as my girlfriend Myrtle. Once again, I felt the work of an unseen hand. The year before, I was cast in the movie Freddy Got Fingered. I never really understood the script. I wanted to be in the movie for two reasons. I wanted to meet Tom Green. He was the star and director of the film. He was an enormously popular comedian and anarchist, and he was a god to my boys. I was hoping for some of his deification to rub off on me by association. The second reason was to meet Julie Haggerty. She was already cast in the movies. She was one of my favorite actors of all time. She's the star of Airplane, Lost in America. These are comedy classics. But she wasn't just funny. She could make you laugh and care at the same time. And like any great magician, I could never see what she was doing. Ever. Despite the fact that I worked on Freddie Got Fingered off and on for 10 weeks in Canada, Julie worked on alternate weeks, so I never saw her once. Not once. And in the end, I was completely cut out of the movie, so I didn't even see her at the cast party. That night, I was hiding under my bed crying. Now, fate had given me another chance to meet her. This time, it was on Broadway, and she was playing my girlfriend. It's nice when fate behaves like a friend of the family. I worked through some of the Homer and Myrtle scenes in my mind on the way to the park. I sat on my favorite bench with my script in hand, talking to myself like the other psychotics in Los Angeles. I was near the end of Act One when I heard a familiar voice behind me. Hey, learning lines? Take a break, man. It's Christmas time. I turned around. It was Mark Moses, fellow thespian. We just shot a movie in Durango, Mexico. We both played cavalry officers in the American-Mexican War of the 1830s. Mark seemed completely out of uniform and jogging clothes without his saber. I asked Mark what he was doing up so early. He said, hey, just doing my morning run. You working on a play? I said, yeah, uh, morning's at seven. Nice, nice, he said. You playing Homer? Yep, I said. Not old enough for the other parts. Mark laughed and said, Wait a couple years, buddy. You're closer than you think. But come to think of it, you'd be a pretty good homer. I hope so, Mark, I said. I hope so. Mark walked around the bench and did some stretches to keep loose. He said, you working on it for a class scene? I shook my head. No, no, I'm doing the whole play. Mark smiled and said, cool. It is a great show. Where are you doing it? Broadway, I said. Great, said Mark. Broadway where? I said, what do you mean? He said, what, North Hollywood, Santa Monica? I haven't heard of that theater. Is it a new place? I said, no, Mark, we're doing it on the real Broadway, the one in New York. Mark shook his head, trying to make the incongruent pieces fit. Wait, 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 you telling me you're doing this play on the real Broadway? The one 3,000 miles away? The place with all the big theaters? Right, I said, we open at the Lyceum on 46th Street. Mark high-fived me and said, great job, man. When do you leave? Six weeks, I said. Middle of February. Mark sat on the bench. Ooh, that is soon. Did this just come out of the blue? Totally, I said. 
Mark slapped my leg and said, hey, don't worry, pal. You do great. Who's your Myrtle? I said, that's the best part, Mark. Julie Haggerty. Mark stopped laughing. He said, you're kidding. I told him I wasn't. Mark sat back and shook his head. Watch out for her. What? What? I said, what, what do you mean? What's wrong with Julie? Mark looked out at the soccer field for a moment. Then he leaned toward me and spoke in low tones in case we were being recorded. I just worked with her, man. We did a show in Philadelphia. In rehearsal, she had that sort of ditzy, funny, oh, this is all too much thing going on. I was expecting she was going to be all over the place. But don't buy it. When it comes time to perform, she will leave you in the dust. She'll mop the floor with you, man. She takes no prisoners. Beware. I said, Mark, I don't think she's going to mop the floor with me. It's been a long time since I've been mopped with. Mark stood up and patted me on the back. Don't say I didn't warn you. Good luck. Mark jogged away into the gray winter morning. I walked back home. Anne was mopping the floor. She said, I just got a call from Lincoln Center. They needed to get some publicity shots before everyone scattered for the holidays. They wanted to set up a shoot in the next couple of days with Julie Haggerty and you. She said, it looks like you're finally going to meet her. You should call him, set up a time. And continued mopping. I made the call. I lied. When I said I thought of how mom or dad would handle a parenting situation, then would do the opposite, that was an exaggeration. I would only do that 95% of the time, maybe 96. There's one tradition I carried over and cherished. I always read to my boys before they went to bed. My mother and father would read to me every night without fail. They had a book of Grimm's fairy tales they would pull down from the shelf. The book had the most horrifying pictures in it of goblins and witches. It also had pictures of beautiful princesses and handsome shepherds. Some of the princesses were wise and loving. Some were flighty and treacherous. The men were no better. Some were honest and steadfast. Others were brutish oafs. I loved hearing these stories every night, despite the cascade of nightmares they could launch. They had a lasting effect. Through them, I saw life as magical and dangerous. Fate was not a simple roll of the dice, but a game of Russian roulette. Now, I don't know if that vision of the world was good or bad, but I felt compelled to pass that on to my sons. And every night, Robert... And then William would jump into bed and pull the covers up to their chins and say, Read me, read me, Daddy. And I would grab a book, or sometimes two. I pull up a stool that was made for a three-year-old. And if I was able to lower myself into position without injury, I began to read. I didn't have Grimm's fairy tale book anymore. That was lost to the ages and is somewhere in Texas, I imagine. I read Aesop, The Book of Virtues, I read The Hobbit twice to both boys. When my son Robert was four, 
He loved poisonous things. <laughs> I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In an homage to the Dangerous Animals Club of my youth, I read him field guides about deadly snakes and plants. His hands-down favorite was a book that featured poisonous mushrooms. It had the Latin names of all the nasty things with the pictures beside them, and underneath the picture was a 1 to 5 rating system as to how poisonous it was. Mushrooms rated 5 had a picture of a skull and crossbones. Two of them had a skull and crossbones with an exclamation point. The Death Cap and the Angel of Death. Robert would sit up in bed and take the book from me. He would silently study every spore and stalk of the Amanita phalloides and then the Amanita virosa. And he would hand me the book back and lie back down, cover up and say with great resolve, Daddy, I want to learn Latin. Before Robert was in first grade, I was calling around town looking for Latin tutors who worked with toddlers. A few years later, William appeared on the scene. He was a different animal entirely. He had difficulty reading English. Anne and I were terribly worried. All of his schoolmates in first and second grade were tackling the major works of Dr. Seuss. William couldn't even read his own name. Teachers brought us in for conferences after school where they uttered the words that cut the heart out of every parent. Special Ed. Anne and I would lie awake at night. I would bring up how Einstein supposedly couldn't read or talk until he was six. Anne said the odds were that William wasn't another Einstein, and we had to face the fact that he may need help, a special school or a child psychiatrist, or both. Whenever I talked about his reading, William got defensive. I said that it was a fact that he was way behind his classmates. I told him that we were going to get him another teacher to help him learn to read and spell. He looked up at me indignantly and said, I can read and spell. Okay, then spell something, I said. Anne came in the room and told me not to get into it now. We were late for school. I shushed her impatiently and said, this will only take a second. William, you said you could read and spell. Spell something. William looked hurt and said, I could spell mommy's name. I said, okay, write it down on this piece of paper. And I handed him an envelope and a pencil, and he carefully printed N-N-A. Anne and I felt a shudder of horror, and then a rush of relief. We had an answer, at least. He was dyslexic. So now what do we do? At night, when I read to William, I tried to show him the words with my finger, but he grew tired of watching and would lie down and pull the covers up to his nose. He would cozy down and command me to keep reading. I told him the book had pictures in it. Didn't he want to see them? He said no. Nothing was better than the pictures he had in his head. William and I didn't read field guides. We read real books. When William saw me grab David Copperfield from the shelf, he ran to his room and jumped under his covers. Some nights he would beg me to read another chapter. Some nights I would beg him if I could read another chapter. I think William saw himself as David Copperfield. He always tried to live up to the first unforgettable words of that book and be the hero of his own life. When we read, there was something in William's understanding and empathy that transcended his age. 
He embraced David's successes, and his scared eyes peered over the covers when I read about David having to work at the factory when he was a little boy and getting whipped by his stepfather. William was so moved by the death of David's newborn brother, he asked me to read that chapter twice. William was very interested in David Copperfield's affection for little Emily. That mirrored his own life as well. He told me he was in love with a girl in his class. Her name was Natalie. I smiled. William got angry. I committed the common parental sin. I let my own reflections be mistaken for condescension. William scolded me. He told me it was true love. Natalie's father was being transferred to Paris, France. She was crying at school. He told her it didn't matter. What people feel in their hearts is stronger than where they are and what they're doing. He promised he would find a way to visit her, and he would never cut his hair until they could be together for all time. I looked into his passionate eyes, burning with purpose. He asked if we could go to France someday. I still hadn't told him about my own departure to New York in a few weeks, so I muttered that I was sure we could make it to Paris at some point in time. In what seemed like an act of universal cruelty, that night we reached the chapter of the book when David and little Emily parted. After David Copperfield, we began our greatest project of all, The Lord of the Rings. All three volumes. I read the first chapter and paused. William asked me to read another. I didn't. Instead, I put the book down and broke the news to him that I would be going away to work in New York. He asked me for how long. I told him I didn't know. Probably a few months. There was a silence in the bedroom. William quietly asked, What about the Lord of the Rings? Who will read me? I told him Mommy would read him, and when Mommy was busy, I would call him on the phone at night and read him over the phone. I showed William that I had another set of the books I was taking with me. I said, We'll have a long-distance relationship. What is that? he asked. I said, That's what they call it when people love each other, but they can't be together. It's like you and Natalie. I'll send you letters and call you on the phone. Mommy will bring you out to visit. William got very sad and said, I don't like a long-distance relationship. Neither do I, I said. Neither do I. Most people don't. Sometimes you can't help it. It's an important thing to know you can still love someone even when you can't see them. It was a dark few days around the house, and then I got an idea. I bought a copy of Around the World in 80 Days and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I told William that when he visited me in New York, we would have double reading sessions, Lord of the Rings and one of the new books. It was the pain-now, gain-in-the-future ploy. If nothing else, it would prepare him for gym memberships. It seemed to work. William kept looking at the picture of the giant squid on the cover of 20,000 Leagues. He asked me what it was. I told him it was a real creature that they think lives very deep in the ocean. He said, when I come to New York, I want to read this one first. If nothing else, our reading at night gave the boys an appreciation for mystery. They had a sense from early on that even when a story seemed hopeless... 
there was still another page to be turned. Anne planned a party with all of our friends. It was a sort of a combination, hello, goodbye, Christmas, Hanukkah, good luck in New York, get together. Seemed like a good idea. I believe there are two kinds of experiences, horizontal and vertical. Horizontal is when you do one thing at a time, like a seven-course French dinner. Vertical is like a hamburger. You have the bread, salad, and meat courses all at once. Parties are the hamburgers of socializing. You don't have the time or luxury for a one-on-one conversation, but you can cover a lot of bases at once. You could talk about children, auditions, cats, and tomato plants all at the same time without breaking a sweat. And you can do all of this while having an alcoholic beverage, which acts like motor oil, lubricating the sudden shifts of conversation. I barbecued some sausages and made a marina salad which is a delicious concoction invented by our friend Marina. In fact, that's what I want to take with me if I'm ever stuck on a desert island. Remember that. Anne and I did Hanukkah with the boys first, before anyone came. We lit three menorahs and said the blessings, and I gave the boys their gifts for the day. And I made sure it was one of the good presents. Celebrating Hanukkah has several inherent problems. The most basic is that you have to give your child eight presents in a row, so they're going to be some stinkers. Now, it's not because we were cheap. It's not because we didn't want to brighten the lives of the little lads with presents. There just aren't that many things that people want. And kids are worse than people. You can't buy them liquor. In the end, you get two good gifts, like a computer game or a computer game. You get three acceptable gifts, like a book, an army knife, or CDs. That still leaves three spaces for terrible gifts, like soap, cat toys, or wood glue. The kids learn very quickly that the eight days of presents isn't all it's cracked up to be. The holiday becomes an unintentional doorway into adult cynicism. So to take the focus off of presents, I've started my own little tradition. Hanukkah Trivia. I tell the boys odd historical facts about the holidays, hoping it will excite the Encyclopedia Britannica area of their brains. I quiz them the next year to see if they remember, and it's very rewarding when they roll their eyes and say, Yeah, yeah, Dad, we know, we know. As a parent, I put that in the win column. Teenage condescension is preferable to me than watching their little faces when they discover the gift of the night is a pair of matching sweatbands. The biggest problem with celebrating Hanukkah is that no one really is sure what it's about. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a general consensus. Everyone is pretty sure that it has something to do with religious freedom and lighting menorah. And for all practical purposes, it is a Jewish 4th of July. But there's very little history to go on. Hanukkah is new to Judaism. It's only 2,000 years old, so it's not mentioned in the Torah. The hero of Hanukkah was the great Judas Maccabee. Maybe. Some modern historians think there wasn't a Judas Maccabee at all. 
They suggest that Maccabee wasn't a name, but an acronym drawn from the first letters of each Hebrew word of the prayer, Mi Hamoko Boilim Adonoi, which was used as the Jewish battle cry. The letters Mi, Ha, Ba became Maccabee. Maccabee also means hammer in Aramaic, which some say described the fierceness of the Jewish army's guerrilla attacks on the Greeks who were occupying their country. So what is the real Hanukkah story? Well, the one that's taught in Sunday school is the famous tale about the oil in the temple, that there was only enough to last for one day and it lasted for eight, which is why we eat potato latkes, something like that. There is another story that's far more instructive that never gets much airplay. The Jews were living under Hellenistic rule. The government had a plan for eliminating them. It didn't involve war or concentration camps or persecution. They had the most dangerous weapon of all. Comfort. The plan was to subvert the ideas of Judaism from within. Greek culture was big on all the vices. Binge, eating, drinking, gambling were popular career paths. The government encouraged Jewish participation. It's hard to argue against orgies. Gambling halls replaced houses of religious study. To fill in the intellectual and spiritual gaps, the Greeks offered their philosophy. That's Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Not bad. Philosophical and debating societies sprung up. Jews began wearing trendy Greek fashions. They had their hair done in Greek styles. Intermarriage was encouraged. Children were taught Greek and not Hebrew. The first lesson of Hanukkah? It's easy to get lost from yourself. Most of the Jewish people had lost their will by this point and had surrendered their considerable heritage for nothing more than the promise of a life with no trouble. A few traditionalists refused to jump ship. They clung to their culture. The Greeks responded by passing laws forbidding Jewish customs. Circumcision was banned, as was celebrating the Sabbath. Torahs were burned. I mean, who needed them? Any Torah study was punished with death. The Jewish temples were converted to temples for Zeus. Judaism could have become one of the hundreds of ancient cultures that were swallowed up and devoured by conquest. The only reason it wasn't was that someone stood up. One person looked back to the past, then looked forward, and he found the future suffered by comparison. This is the second lesson of Hanukkah. History is not made by armies or governments. They only finish the job. It's made by one man or one woman who makes the choice to stand up. In this instance, it was Mattathias, a Jewish priest. He was ordered by the Greek officials to give an offering to Zeus. He refused. He was going to be put to death when another Jew stepped forward and offered to give the sacrifice to Zeus in Mattathias's place. As the story goes, Mattathias drew his sword and killed the Jew. Then he and his sons, including Judas Maccabee, fought and killed the Greek soldiers, and a war began. I played some historical trivia with the boys. I gave them each a good present, a computer game that they had been pining for. Each game was based on the dramatic formula of a few against many, massacre and mayhem, so I felt they were appropriate for the Hanukkah season. The boys disappeared into their rooms to start the bloodshed just as the first party guests arrive. People came in in dribbles, then in a flood. 
The house was filling up with old friends and new friends, new strangers, old strangers. Everyone was drinking wine, eating sausages and salad. There were a million different conversations going on at once. Walking through the living room, I felt utterly alone amidst the noise. It was a nice trial run for New York. Suddenly, I heard William's door slam, and he came running out into the party. He was revved up into child overdrive, and I could recognize all the signs of a computer game high. I asked if he needed anything as he blasted by me and ran into one of our guests who dropped their drink on the floor. Our guest gave an embarrassed little laugh, the same kind people give when a strange dog jumps on you at the park with muddy paws. And just like those dog owners, I smiled sheepishly and said, Oh, sorry, he never does this. Don't worry, he won't bite. I got another drink for our friend as William continued running in and out of the guests. People were laughing politely, but it was incumbent on me as the dog owner to slow him down. I tried to corner him in the kitchen. He thought it was part of the game, and he ran faster. He crawled under me and under the dining room table out onto the other side, and he was gone. Now the two of us were running through the crowded house. Anne followed. She pulled me from the chase and told me I had to get William back to his room. I thanked her for the theoretical advice and continued pursuing the wild one. I finally grabbed him by the arm and he started yelling, Daddy, you're hurting me! The guest continued to smile, making mental notes for the police report. I got William back to his room and asked him, What is wrong with you? He started laughing. <laughs> nothing, Daddy. Nothing is wrong. I just need to run. I said, well, you, you can run tomorrow. Right now, you're wrecking the party. William laughed hysterically. I need to run, Daddy. I just need to run, 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 run. I had to strategize. I said, William, you need to calm down. You are going to have a timeout for 10 minutes, mister. You just sit here and listen to music. No computer. Calm down. I left the room and closed the door. I rounded the corner into the party and made eye contact, which passed along this silent, wifely message, Have you taken care of the beast? I raised my eyebrows with a combination of self-pity and parental mastery, which silently conveyed the husbandly message, I have done what a man needs to do, and it wasn't easy. The punctuation for my silent commentary came with the slamming of William's door behind me. He streaked past me back into the dining room for another attack. The time out was worse than useless. It just gave him enough time to come up with a better game plan. He realized it was much more fun knocking over people who were carrying things instead of mere pedestrians. He was like a cruise missile. He targeted anyone holding a plate of food. It was obvious to all that William inflicted damage wasn't accidental. The giveaway was his maniacal laughter. Anne was elbow deep in the mixing bowl making more marina salad. She said she'd be there in a second to help out, but right now I had to stop him. I ran through the crowd. I grabbed William by the arm. I pulled him over to the stereo and told him in no uncertain terms, if he didn't stop, he was getting a spanking. He instantly calmed down. He looked up at me with deeply repentant eyes. He turned and walked a few steps away from me, stopped, looked back, and then began cackling like a madman. He had played me like a drum. He plunged back into the party guests one more time. I was furious. I ran after him. I grabbed him and started dragging him back to his room. I yelled, that's it! That's it! 
he began screaming. I lifted him up in the air with his legs kicking furiously, and he shouted, put me down, put me down. I shouted back, you've had your chance, now you're getting a spanking. Well, that really perked up the party. Now the guests were happy I was leaving for New York, and the sooner the better. Some were phoning child services. I put William back in his room and closed the door. I sat on the bed and said, William, come here. William stepped forward. I said, no, no, no. Come here and lay across my lap. William stood still and said, no, Daddy. I said, don't you tell me no. You are getting a spanking. William stood his ground and said, Daddy, you don't want to do that. I said, what do you mean I don't want to do that? William said, spanking me won't do any good. It will only make me mad and make you feel bad. I pondered this for a second and said, Yes, that's true, William. I never want to spank you. I stopped in my tracks. I suddenly saw my father in the rearview mirror. One of the many things from the past I did not care to pass on to William was the lesson I learned that the world was crazy. I mean, he was going to learn it anyway, but I'd prefer he learn it from someone else. Okay, William, I said. I see that now you want to pretend you're being reasonable. Fine. Let's talk like grown-ups. I gave you warnings. I gave you a timeout. I gave you every chance I could. I have to keep my word to you now and spank you. Why, said William, so you know that I mean what I say. Oh, I know you mean what you say, Daddy, but spanking won't make me believe that. It'll just make me hate you, and it'll make you hate yourself. Well, that's true, William, I said. That, that is true. Okay, so I won't spank you. Good, said William. He held out his hand and we shook. I said, so, if I don't spank you, and if timeouts don't work, what do I do when you get wild like this and ruin everybody's night? William thought about a little and said, well, that's your problem, Daddy. I don't know. Sometimes I go crazy. I said, well, maybe I should not read to you tonight. William looked truly concerned. Oh, You don't want to do that either, Daddy. We only have a few days left before you leave. It would hurt you too much not to read me. I was almost reduced to tears. You're right. Look, William, I'm just going to leave now. Listen, stay in here so Mommy will think I did something. Try to calm down. If you come out again and ruin the party, I will throw your computer game away. And if that doesn't work, I'll throw your computer away. And I promise you... I won't feel guilty about that, okay? William nodded. Okay, I'll just stay back here and play. Good idea, I said. I'll be back when everyone leaves and we'll read some more Lord of the Rings. I left William's room. Anne was waiting for me in the kitchen. She said, So? I responded sullenly, So? She said, did you give William a spanking? I did the yes, no, sideways, non-committed nod into space. I said, I, I took care of William. Baby, it's hard being a father. Anne held me in consolation. I continued, I don't think we'll see William for the rest of the night. Anne looked up at me. Are you okay? I shook my head. I don't know. My dad was right. It did hurt me more than it hurt him. 
A few days before Christmas, I headed over to a house somewhere in the greater Los Angeles area to take some pictures for the Broadway poster with Julie Haggerty. The people at Lincoln Center told me to wear something that looked like a costume for the play. Well, I didn't have a lot of clothes from the 1930s around the house, so I put on a white linen sport jacket that looked like what the British explorers wore in the Tarzan movies. I arrived at the photographer's house. He was tweaking the light setup. He said he'd be ready in a second. I asked if I could get a little water. He pointed toward the kitchen. As I was walking back from the water cooler, I saw Julie Haggerty coming to the house from her car. I got butterflies. It was worse than square dance day in fourth grade. It was a combination of being starstruck mixed with fear of being used as a mop. I tried to think of what I would say to her. The only thing that sprung to my mind were choices I would have made in junior high school. I could answer the door and say, you know, there's no place like Homer. (laughs) Or Homer is where the heart is. And then I thought that was just way too creepy. And I should maybe let the photographer answer the door to his own house. Maybe I could sneak up on her later after she got settled, sit down next to her and say, howdy. But that seemed way creepy, too. So I opted for standing in the corner, hiding behind my water glass, another choice from junior high school. Julie came in full of nervous energy. The photographer introduced us. I said, hello, Julie. I'm Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm playing Homer. It's such a pleasure to meet you finally. Julie looked at me with wide eyes and smiled. Hello, she said. And then she looked around the room. My, isn't this so exciting? So many things going on. So many things happening. And she walked past me and asked if I knew where she could get a drink of water. I pointed to the kitchen and she was gone. Another moment from junior high school. The photographer stuck his head out from his light curtains and said, Miss Haggerty, we could do your shots now. You don't mind waiting, do you, Stephen? Julie has a tight schedule. Julie looked at me and smiled and said, Do you mind? We're leaving town and I do have to run. Her face was so luminous when she smiled. I was taken aback. I said, No, please. Go ahead. Julie thanked me and stepped in for her photos. She finished and ran out of the front door and called back, Nice to meet you. See you in New York. And that was it. I got home and Ann asked me how the shoot went and if I got to meet Julie. I told her I was neutralized by her smile. Ann got a certain look and said, Can we talk? Now, normally that phrase would be enough for me to run for cover. But there was a bit of mischief in Ann's eyes that kept me from locking myself in the bathroom. We walked out into the garden. It was a beautiful California winter day. The sun was shining. The last roses were still in bloom. Side note, if anyone wants to know why people would live in California, I have three words for you. Roses in December. We sat out on a bench. Anne looked up at the sky and said, I was thinking, you're going away from me, from us, for a long time. I muttered that, yes, that was true. And Anne said, I thought of something that would make it better, make it easier. I told her I was up for anything. She smiled and said, what if we went away somewhere, together, just the two of us, like a honeymoon, a trip we would always remember? Sounded good to me. I said, you you mean have someone watch the kids for a couple nights and we go to a hotel, maybe out by the beach? Anne kept looking at me and said, no. I was thinking of something different. 
what I asked, and said, Paris, for a week. Pause. I waited an appropriate amount of time for her to tell me she was speaking metaphorically. She wasn't. Paris, I said, and kept staring at me, for a week. Anne got a very down-to-earth business look in her eye. She told me that since 9-11, they were practically giving away transatlantic plane tickets. She said she was doing some research and found a little hotel by the Comédie Française for less than $75 a night. We could do the whole trip for less money than three nights in a nice hotel in Santa Monica. I asked her when we would go. We could be there for Valentine's Day, she said. We could spend a week, come home, have a couple more days with the boys before you head east. That night I told William that Mommy and I were going on a trip to Paris before I left for New York. William's eyes lit up. He said he could see Natalie again. They could run to the top of the Eiffel Tower. I told him he wasn't coming. It was just going to be a trip for me to be with Mommy. Sort of a goodbye trip. William didn't say a word. He became sadly silent, lay back in bed, and pulled the blankets up. He said quietly, Read me, Daddy. I pulled out The Lord of the Rings. I turned down the overhead and began to read. Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket again and looked at it and cried, I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered, said Gandalf. You may be sure it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for any power or wisdom at any rate. But you have been chosen, and you must therefore use your strength and heart and wits as you have. I paused and looked up. William was asleep. I watched him breathing for a moment. I quietly closed the book and put it on the bedside table. I turned down the lights and lay down beside him. He put his arm around me. It was one of my most precious moments as a father. I almost felt forgiven. That was The Long Distance Relationship, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Well, I know that at stephentobolowsky.com, you could find the Kindle story uh, that I wrote for them uh, called uh, Cautionary Tales. It's uh, amusing, and I think you're going to like it. And you can uh, also find every episode of The Tobolowsky Files at tobolowskyfiles.com. Dot com And I just want to put a quick public service announcement out there. We're going to have some pretty big news to announce for the Tobolowski Files in the near future. Let me tease that announcement by saying the following. If you have ever considered listening to all the Tobolowski Files episodes that are available online at com, now is the time to listen to and or download those episodes. Uh, so that's all we can say for now. Stay tuned to this podcast feed for more info on that update 
But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you guys later. Adios. Adios.